Hello, I'm Jenny Thomas. And I'm Nick Heath, and welcome to Jenny Thomas Talks About Child Bereavement for the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust. As a journalist friend and someone who lost a parent in my teenage years, my role in this series is to ask Jenny to share with us some stories, insight and guidance as to what's useful for anyone who is grieving or supporting someone who is bereaved. As a leading figure and pioneer in child bereavement, Jenny is the patron of the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust. On these podcasts, Jenny will share what children and parents have said was so important to them at this most difficult time in their lives. I hope you'll find what I've got to say and share with you beneficial. If you find any areas of what we discuss particularly difficult, I do encourage you to seek out a family member, a friend or counselling professional who is able to listen and be supportive. Jenny is regretfully unable to respond to any individual requests for support or counselling. But for more information on the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust, visit almt.org. And if you'd like further resources, you can head to Jenny's website on jennythomas.com or view the links in the podcast description. Hello and welcome to Jenny Thomas Talks About Child Bereavement. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's a cool but sunny autumnal day as we record this podcast episode. Uh, and, uh, and as the description says, today we're going to be hearing Jenny talk about the death of a child. And, uh, and Jenny, well this is a broad area which we'll explore and as with many of our episodes, it is a hugely emotive subject. Yes it is. It strikes at the very worst of our fears I don't think anyone who's had children doesn't worry about something happening to them. And when we hear about the death of a child, it can make us feel very vulnerable and very worried about our own children and what might happen to them. Um, and I think that's why child death evokes such emotion in most people. When we're talking about children uh, during this episode a child can be a young person uh, for an older parent losing a grown-up child is is still their child ultimately isn't it so how are we how are we defining a child during today's discussion yes I agree actually with what you've said an older child um, is still if if it dies and its parents are still alive is still the death of a child for its parents and and I've learned that that can be a very very great loss uh, people don't always understand but I mostly work, my particular work is around younger children, children that are dependent, children who are still living with and needing care from, from their parents. And one of the things I was going to say here, Nick, was that I work in a way that when I'm contacted, it's usually soon after the death of a child. And I work often guidance and support um, to the families at that time. They may go on to have more formal counselling, but in those initial months, that's what my role is. And I'll talk a bit about that because I'm going to be talking about how the grief of losing a child affects us, and particularly at the beginning and then through our, our grieving time. Mm. Okay. What have you learned then from parents' experiences? I understand you've you've based a lot of what you do is on is on helping people understand their reactions to grief. Yes, and I think that's really important because it's reassuring. I think lots of people feel that they're going mad. The grief is so completely overwhelming and something you know absolutely nothing about and it just doesn't feel as if you're normal anymore so I think it's important to understand grief and and reassure parents and and I'm hoping that this podcast will be a help in that way one of the things that happens at the beginning of the loss of a child whether it's a child that you've looked after for a long time and know that it's sadly going to die or whether it's a shocking accident that you didn't expect at all our natural reaction is always to believe that it can't be true when you're actually told somebody's died most people become very shocked by it and they feel that it's just not true and it takes some time for the truth to actually become real and the more time we have with 
someone helping us with that, the more helpful that can be. So that's why we need to talk about it. Mm. That's why we need to refer to the event and not confuse it by using words that are not truthful and not helpful. So often when I see parents, they will talk about being like it's a dream, that they can't believe what's happened. And they talk about it as if it's a story that's happened to someone else. I'm actually thinking as I'm speaking to you of a family where they were talking about what had happened, which was utterly dreadful, but as if it wasn't their experience. And I actually said to them, it sounds to me as if that's not you you're talking about. You're looking down on this family. And they, both the parents said, yes, that, that's right. We, we, we realize we do do that. And it's also a way of keeping yourself a bit numb. You know, we often can feel very numb in shock and we do it to protect ourselves. And it's not useful or helpful for someone in my position to break down that numbness or that protection too quickly. Mm. It's not, it's not, um, it's there for a reason. We take on enormous events slowly. And my role is to help them slowly take on what has fully happened. And it, I guess you often will have people, and you know, maybe something we've touched on before, that talking about, you know, get on with it, come to the reality of it. You need to start dealing with this. Uh, or, but as you mentioned, it's it's got to be something that's done sensitively. And, and then when you've got people that perhaps feel more in that dreamlike state, you also have to do something at least to begin to create that connection with what's actually happened. Well, like what I did, you know, by saying I can see that you're telling me this from a distance. Okay, yeah. So that's that's how that's how it's helpful. It's also really important to realise that being numb is a feeling. People will say, I don't have any feelings. It's also shocking. Um, but it is a feeling and, and numbness is a way of protecting yourself, as we've just said. Yeah. And people who are grieving will often feel pretty exhausted, pretty tired. But there's a, there's a nuance within that that I know is, is important for you to point out. Well, it's different sort of tiredness. It's an absolute exhaustion that's different from being tired. You wake up exhausted. Your whole body feels tired and exhausted. And it's partly because your tiredness is about all the stuff that's going on in your thinking all the time. Even you can't switch it off because this information that you've been given that's been so shocking and so terrible is ever present in your mind. So it's there all the time. So yes, you feel your body aches. Very often people who are grieving will do an awful lot of yawning. They will feel very tired when they come to see me. They'll feel even more exhausted when they leave. But it's totally natural. Mm. It's it's just that you're, you know, it's it's a physical way of reacting. And quite often people can feel that it's quite like flu. Yeah, I know that uh, in one of our other podcasts where we speak to uh, Lisa and Stuart, Stuart mentions some physical feelings of of the grief that, that he has and, and that these that it, it can manifest itself physically. Oh, definitely. Very, very often people have to get almost physically ill and go to bed to then accept that they have to stop and allow themselves to grieve. That, that can be particularly so with men. Quite often men I see who appear to be supporting their wife and managing really well themselves, once she seems to be slightly better and over the very worst of the crisis, he will quite often get ill. And I think physically that's what can happen with a man. I mean, I'm sure it happens with women as well, but that's something I've noticed. And there's a, and there's a restlessness as well that, that can come with it? Yes, I, I don't think people realise how incredibly difficult that restlessness is in grief. You, you can't settle. You can't stop and do anything particularly meaningful. If you used to love reading, you can't read. You, if you watch a television programme, you can't really stay with it. Um, nothing sort of takes your interest because your whole self is taken up with this enormous loss that you've experienced. So, yes, I think, um, you, and you feel very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. It, that, that's one of the big things that can be hard to manage. 
And I think someone has uh, someone that you've been seeing mentioned to you that it felt like having one skin less. Yes, that was a lady that I supported years ago who was, it well, is a very well-known writer. And I asked her what it felt like to have lost a child. And she said, if you speak to doctors, Jenny, it'd be really helpful for you to tell them that mother, she was a mother, um, feels like she has one skin less. She said, I feel every noise affects me. Every time someone touches me, it feels a different sort of touch to how it used to. Super sensitive. Super sensitive. And if we remember that, it's no wonder that people who are bereaved through the loss of a child or bereaved anyway will be very sensitive to what you say and how you behave um, just because that's the effect it's had on them. And that sensitivity contributes to that feeling of vulnerability. Yes. And and uh, and I know that, you know, there's a little more that, that you wanted to say on that in terms of people feeling vulnerable to their own grief as to, as to thinking with regards to the person who's died, you know, if only I could have done something different. And, and that sense is, is something that can go around and around. Oh, yes. I think in, in most people's minds, parents have told me it's like a... It's like a video in their mind that they constantly remember all those, all the different things, and especially those last few times of seeing each other, the lots goodbye, all those things keep going. And you can feel very, very vulnerable to grief, more, more loss happening. You know, people talk to me about how worried they are about their other children, how concerned they are that their partner's going to come home and not have a, an accident. Um, and, and with all these losses and all the different ways in which we experience the loss of a child, it can be over a long protracted period of time where you have had a chance to get used to the fact that the child is not going to get better, but it's still a shock. Mm. Or it can be when you're thrown into a totally new experience of a knock at the door and being told about a, a terrible accident or that. Um, something you weren't expecting that suddenly you get the news that your child has got something very wrong and is not going to live for very long so you get very little preparation mm. and we've mentioned as well I think you know at the start of our series we said that we would we would mention as well that obviously what is a, a very difficult scenario when you wouldn't expect someone to have taken their own life Yes, yes, that's certainly um, very true if a young person takes their life at the very height of their being what a terrible shock that is for parents and also how important it is that they have time to talk through the if onlys if only they'd realized if only they'd seen more into something that none of us would have been able to see into but they that is a very strong thing around a child that's taken its life as if only we'd noticed if only and and also how hard um, a suicide is because it's often public knowledge you know people hear about it people talk about it and it's the last thing you want to be publicly known for and known about and certainly you have to have an inquest and the inquest has to be managed by a coroner and when it's done really well and the coroner is very very sensitive to the parents and the family it can be a helpful way of getting final information and also ending closing that book but how the press then manage that has a huge impact Mm. on on the family and how um you know it's written up and if the family can give the press the information and give the photo to the press of their child that they loved they then that's so much more helpful because they have control over that that that's what makes a big difference because if you think about it we control everything about our children for so much of their childhood to then suddenly lose all that control because it's being taken over by the hospital or the police or by whatever. Those services need to remember parents' need for, for some some control. And being in a scenario where the press perhaps are running a story or are using a photo that you don't have control of could be very distressing. Yes, in fact, a story that... Um, 
I know of a family that I supported who very sadly lost a child and a photograph was obtained by the press and it was on the front page of the paper, which, you know, the press do for a reason to help the the world know about how important the loss of a child is. Um, but on this particular case, the parents didn't know the photo was going to be used. They didn't know the press had, were going to be doing this. And it wasn't an inquest. It was soon after the, the death had happened. Um, and the parents were getting petrol um, in a petrol station, not where they lived, further afield. And they um, noticed it was a pouring rainy day and the papers were all blowing off the, the paper stand in the front foyer. And cars were driving over the picture of their child and oh. it was immensely immensely painful and that's where we need to just be really sensitive and understand their distress really i was looking up the origins of uh, of the word grief and uh, and grief comes from a meaning to burden or to make heavy and then grief is is something is something that we talk about feeling that we've been robbed of the most important thing. Um, and the word rob comes from an old English version of bereave. So so all of these sort of things are, are, way, connected. are, are, are all connected, yeah. Yes, I certainly feel that um, often when I listen to parents that what they're talking about is a su- enormous robbery. Mm. You know, they've been robbed of the most precious thing in their life. And, you know, when you're robbed, you don't just feel a bit upset or a bit sad or a bit tearful. You can feel really furious. Mm. And where do those feelings go? And and intruded upon. Oh, totally intruded upon. And violated. Yes. You can feel violated. And then people are a bit surprised that bereaved people can feel angry. Well, of course they feel angry, but what do you do with that anger? You know, it's not helpful to go out and hurt somebody and it's not helpful to get very cross in the car when you feel someone's not driving very well. But you do need to go somewhere with that anger and find a way of expressing it. And very often that's something that happens with me. You know, that to talk about it, to say how furious you feel. Feelings are never judgeable. What you do with them can be judgeable, but it doesn't there's no way in which I ever judge a feeling mm. and and it's usually quite helpful to be able to express being angry and, and does does it, addressing that sort of stop people going over and over it again? What can you do to try and get people to to sort of break out of that sort of cycle of 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 dwelling on on going over and over you know what might have been different or or you know these these constant feelings of grief I think People find their own way, their own level. Some people can manage to talk about it and that helps them feel it's validating them and they feel helped by coming and talking about it and they want to come back again and talk about it. That's one of the things that does happen in grief. We need to talk about what's happened over and over again. It's totally normal. But how do you do that if you don't have someone that you can talk to who really wants to listen? Mm. And also, you make sense of it yourself when you tell somebody. So quite often people will thank me. But in actual fact, they've done the work. Mm. I've just been the person that's listened. And they've done, they've talked about what it's like and how awful it feels. And then they realize that they feel a bit better. Um, and they're going to go home and do something differently. This, You know, I might go via the village today instead of just going straight to the car. You know, little things, it's tiny steps over the loss of a child um, that, you know, help people to feel they're moving forward. Mm. What other behaviours will you see in people that have uh, have suffered the loss of a child? Very often wanting to know what happened, exactly what happened, and to talk about that, to talk about everything that led up to it, to talk about what actually happened. And they can be very um, disturbed by not knowing the exact events. You know, that's why deaths that you weren't present at, you didn't know about, can be so very difficult. And, and actually, I'm thinking of a particular situation where a father was uh, with a child on a swing and the child suddenly went blue and unfortunately had a cardiac arrest and the the 
ambulance took him straight to the hospital and the father followed in a car and by the time the father got there found somewhere to park came into A&E the child had died and I saw him afterwards um, about how grief-stricken he was but what kept coming up was he didn't know what actually happened and so I asked him if he thought it would be helpful to come to the unit where the child was admitted and he said he did he was quite nervous about it but we met outside and I went through this is where the ambulance brought your your little boy this is uh, where it reversed in this is the room that your son was taken to I used the child's name and this is the resuscitation table that he was put on Mm. and his head was this end and his feet were this end and this is where the doctor used the equipment to try and save his life. And I then was lucky enough to find one of the nurses who'd been around at the time who told me how long they tried, and we explained that to the dad. And then, in actual fact, he had arrived at the hospital by this time, and he came in. Um, So he knew from then on, although he didn't then know, because he was so distressed with the actual news, he didn't then know what happened to his little boy. So I then found out that that he was taken down to the mortuary and who the mortician was. So that I was able to say, well, Mick in the mortuary will be looking after your child and he's a very caring man he'll take care of him Mm. and those sorts of things helped this father with what I think of as a jigsaw puzzle it's like for all of us with our children we we've got their births and their childhood we've got all these bits that they've done and then when they die we've got this bit sort of in the middle of our jigsaw which we don't always know very much about so to have an opportunity to talk that over a lot of times it wasn't something we did quickly but it gradually the the hole in the middle got smaller and smaller mm. and he when we ended when he ended seeing me he said that he felt complete he felt although you know he hadn't known a lot of things he had discovered what time his child actually died and things like that and all mattered and he so, wasn't he wasn't looking then for for further answers i guess no, and he didn't actually ever blame anyone. I mean, because there can be justifiable blame if you feel that everything wasn't done. But actually, because he, when he got there and he knew that everything was being done, and then it was explained to him in the way that I've just described, he never he never um, con- was concerned that n- not everything was done. And what about scenarios where people do feel that more could be done? And, and some people will want to perhaps follow up with legal action or that, or that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, obviously, we can't go into, into specifics, but how does that affect somebody's grief? Oh, very, in a very big way, because one of the things that happens is if you do justifiably feel that you've been um, not told the truth or things haven't been done properly, then you will use all your energy to try and get to that truth and to take legal action around it and that robs you even further of you being able to grieve for your child because you're into doing that I'm not saying it's right or wrong I have no idea what I would do but I do know that that's what happens and very often those people come back to see me even if the legal action has taken seven years which it has with one family that I've seen Um, they then needed to grieve. Mm. And it was much harder to even begin to do it seven years later. So it sort of, it it can have the effect of blocking the grieving process. It can, and sometimes it can be unjustified. You know, there can be nothing to blame, but people who feel very, very wronged and can't get into the grief, they will sometimes feel that um, they've got justifiable anger when maybe they that's mm. not the case. It's useful to get someone to help you look at whether that's really what's going on. Mm. Another thing that you've mentioned uh, to me to, that you wanted to discuss today was that that feeling that some people can have of, or, or, or not even fe- feeling that uh, an action that people can can be physically and mentally searching for something. Yes. Oh, yes. Certainly. After 
the loss of a child, parents can search um, constantly, both in their mind and, and physically, and wanting to know what's happened, wanting to talk to other people who've been through exactly the same grief. I've been able to, on occasions, introduce people to each other, and that's been a huge comfort, because there's something about just wanting to know as anyone else feels like I do, mm. you know, felt like I do, because we all want to actually identify as people. And if you lose a child, who do you identify with? Mm. It can, yes, it can be a very, a very difficult, and it make, can make you extremely anxious. One of the other areas of grief that people don't, I think, realize how big anxiety is. In, in grief, we become much more anxious, not just about the grief and the loss, but just about life in general. Because all of a sudden, what we thought was sure, and although we hear about people dying on television and things like that, we never think it's going to be us. And when it is us and we lose someone we love, you realize that life isn't sure anymore mm. and it can be very scary. And you you find it we can find it very hard to trust that the person we love is going to come home at the end of the day or that we're just anxious about our own health about life generally mm, about money or about about these sorts of things things that ultimately are seem unrelated to the bereavement yes but they they aren't they they're very much part of the bereavement and they do get better i mean i'm talking about all of this in a way that i don't want to heighten anxiety for people that this is what's going to what it's going to be like. But people feel all of this at different stages and in different degrees. Some people feel something very strongly, others don't. But if you recognize any of this, it's a totally normal reaction to grief. The thing that I, I feel people need to know a bit more is that there is some depression in grief, but often people are labeled as depressed because they're grieving. And actually, grief is about being full of feelings. And depression is about being empty of feelings. And you might need help with either one of those. And mm, that's sh- interesting. Does, does that um, ring a bell? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people would, wouldn't necessarily make that distinction. Um, and, uh, and that perhaps their feeling of disinterest in life or what's going on or, or a little bit of disconnection from things is, is related to them grieving and therefore they're probably depressed and, and that sort of thing. But actually, it, it's a bit like what you talk about in terms of being numb is still a feeling. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you may be feeling disconnected, but that is a feeling. And, yes. and, uh, and that, yeah, that, that the grief is a, is something of its own and, and depression is something else. And if you are, obviously I'm not saying that there isn't a real place for getting help if you are having um, long moments and doing, being very disinterested in life and being very depressed, you know, do go to your doctor, do get help. But very often people I see will get some antidepressants and then see me at a later stage and revisit the grief because you can't really avoid grief. It's part of what happens when you lose someone you love. And yes, antidepressants can help you cope and that can be very helpful, but you will have to do it in the end. And and I don't really see people particularly who are having antidepressant help because um, they're going to need me later. Yeah, okay. Another area of the... I imagine the, the the mental side of it really can be, I imagine, a feeling of, of guilt that, that as a parent, as we've mentioned, you you feel like you have a responsibility throughout your life to be the parent of your children. And, and therefore, I guess if you lose a child, there's that feeling that, that you didn't stop that happening and that that could perhaps be, be, be difficult to deal with. Yes, the, the loss of control is horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And you can feel very guilty that you somehow allowed this terrible thing to happen, even if it had nothing to do with anything you could have done. You know, to be a parent is to be vulnerable. A parent's ability to protect their children is limited. Mm. The absence of control is horrifying. Sometimes when we continue to feel guilty and can't let it go um, and 
take on board that we did do everything and we were a good enough parent. Mm. Um, it's a way of punishing ourselves. And I think as a counsellor, I'm very aware that that needs some special help because we don't need to be punished when a child's died. You know, we've been punished enough as parents. So, um, yes, I, I, I think it's really helpful to be mindful about that. So how different is it then if a parent has been responsible for the death of their child? I think every loss of a child is unbearable and to think of something being more unbearable is almost inconceivable. There are ways in which people may feel a different feeling. They may feel more guilty because actually they have been responsible for it. So there's some justifiable guilt when a child dies and where a parent has been responsible um, and they may, there might be some traumatic, there might be a traumatic reaction to that particular event. And tell me what happens when someone has a traumatic reaction? Well, in normal reactions, in normal grief, we can choose what we want to tell people. We decide how much and how little and how much we want them to know. With traumatic grief, with traumatic reactions to grief, that isn't what happens. There is no control. So um, you may hear a sound that will make you suddenly remember that event, or it may be a smell, it could be any number of things, or even feeling something can actually trigger that um, traumatic reaction. And when that happens, the person can feel very physically affected by it. It can be very incapacitating. Mm. And for some people, it's frightening to go out of the house because of it, because they're fearful that that might happen. We hear quite often about people having panic attacks. It's, it's similar to a panic attack, but it's a traumatic reaction to a very large trauma that you've experienced but not everyone feels it and it, not everyone needs support over it. I've been fortunate enough to be supervised and to have done a fair bit of training with somebody called David Tricky, who's a specialist in trauma and he's somebody that is certainly worth learning about and finding out what he says because it's, it's very valuable. And do you have an example of how this traumatic reaction can affect someone? Yes. An example is of someone who had a child that sadly drowned and it was in a bath at home. Um, there were two of the children were in the bath together and the mother took the, the a call on her mobile and she just stepped out onto the landing to, to take it. And she was hardly gone any time at all. And one of the children drowned. And her reaction to it was obviously absolutely agonizing to witness but also what then happened was she used to have a traumatic reaction to water so uh, okay. if she couldn't shower she couldn't wash her hair she became very reclusive and it took some time to realize uh, I wasn't actually seeing her but I was then ref she was referred to me with this concern about water and having physical reactions to hearing water um, that we learnt where it might have come from and we worked through that. And actually that was very helpful in... I've made a film called The Danger Age with a father who had a little boy that um, drowned and he raised money to make this film. It is available on my website and it's about how it's usually young children that drown and often little boys who sort of suddenly decide to leave mum or dad's side and do their own thing and their parents are not expecting that. So um, they toddle off and they sadly will drown in rivers and ponds and um, at people's swimming pools. And the thing about drowning and children is that you make not a sound. When mm. you drown, there isn't a sound made. And it's very quick. Mm. And people always think, oh, I can see them. I know they're all right. But actually, water is terribly dangerous. And it's a very, very misunderstood danger for children. Mm. So the danger age, which is around two to three, with 
mostly little boys, is what this film is about. And there's a link in the podcast description to the film uh, for anybody that would like uh, to see that. Um, All parents who experience the loss of a child long to have a connection with it and, and people who sort of are happy to make these films are obviously continuing the connection with the loss that they've yes. had. Um, I'm here helping with the podcast, having lost my mum at 14. These these are important things. And and hearing the child's name, th- these sorts of things are, are things that you found can be helpful. Definitely. I mean, I often get asked to do things where a child has died and the parents want to do something to put back into the world. They want to do something. And exactly the little Conway was the reason that his daddy and mummy wanted to make the danger age. Um, certainly in most charities, like the Angus Lawson charity, there is a reason. There is a child that is their reason for doing it. Rosie's Rainbow, all these different um, reasons for wanting to stay connected and to hear your child's name and to know that some good is coming out of what was such an immense tragedy. The the other family that I've been involved with was Horatio and Horatio was a young boy that was sadly killed in a horrendous um I suppose it was an accident but he was killed by a bear on a trip out in Finland and his love was gardens and wanting to get a garden into hospitals and where his dad was worked and his parents and his brothers have taken that wish forward and now Horatio's gardens are being built as attachments to NHS hospitals and I can't tell you because I work in one where Horatio's garden has just recently been opened the absolute joy it gives to people who are in hospital for a long time to be able to go out into a garden to be wheeled out in their bed and actually feel that they're in nature when Mm. you're stuck in hospital that came from Horatio Mm. and his wish to do something and and I think there's a distinction to be made that it's not just about not wanting to forget the child that's died and and that you're doing things in their memory but uh, but uh, that it's it's sort of partly related to the fact that parents will continue to parent their child in grief. That's right. You've listened well, because I <laughs> like that so much. I, I, I listen to parents talking about the things they're doing, and we as parents parent our children all the time. You don't parent your child less when it's died. You still want to do things that are connected with it, and that's a really important thing to stay in touch with. It's not people aren't letting go. Um, It's not that people aren't managing grief. It's people manage grief in the way they do. We grieve as we must. And people who want to do something more with their grief, it's it's a very natural way of of, um, parenting. Not everyone does it, and some people do it very quietly that we wouldn't even know about. But it's it's a big part of, of grief. And one of the ways that I know uh, some parents have uh, have looked to continue parenting and, and leaving that legacy behind is uh, is via a play called I Love You Mum, I Promise I Won't Die, which uh, is Mark Wheeler's moving play about Daniel Spargo Mabs, which has well, it's been put on in front of thousands of young people to highlight the uh, the risks of drug drugs and alcohol and how to make safe choices themselves. And the fact that, that sometimes, unfortunately, with the loss of a child, it, it may be because... A child has made the wrong choice. Yes, usually it's teenagers, you know, people exploring life, taking different risks, which is part of growing up. And parents can't be watching all the time, but it can leave parents with a very great sense of um, if only they had been able to stop it. Um, And I know there are different ways that parents have helped us understand by writing about their grief and about their feelings. And as you've just said about Daniel, one of the ways that Nick and Susie Cave have have helped people understand the loss of their son Arthur has been by writing about it. So I think people who write about it, who tell us about what's going on, tell us about how they feel, do a great deal of good in highlighting the feelings of loss and grief and that you most people despite all of what we've talked about and how awful and hard it is 
do survive and do come through. You never, you never ever have a day, I don't think, where you don't think about a child of yours that's died. But you can get on with life and you can make enduring connections with them through the work, the writing. Someone I know does a dancing class, which they've named after their child. We do different things that make us stay connected um, very, very helpfully. We talked about uh, traumatic death and perhaps, you know, the the death through recreational drugs. It may be that a child died from a long-term illness, all, all these sorts of examples of, of how a child might die. But I know it's important to point out that, that there's no hierarchy in, in what's worse in grief. No, that's right. I, I really would like to highlight that's very, very important. There's nothing that is more awful for any parent than to lose a child and it doesn't matter how that death has happened it doesn't make it worse or better quite often people feel that if the child was disabled or um, had uh, lots of problems that it was probably a relief for the parents I don't experience that in the people I see most of the people I see who've had a child that's been very dependent because of health reasons are even closer to that child because it's part of every waking minute that they have is worrying and thinking about that child with the problem. So when that child dies, the loss is absolutely huge in terms of every waking minute Mm. and what you would normally do with your life. The other thing that I've mentioned in previous episodes, and I think is worth mentioning again here, is how men and women can behave differently in grief. I'm not saying this is a set pattern, and I appreciate that in same-sex relationships it's more about the roles each parent plays rather than their gender. But for this example, and in my experience, I'll refer to them as simply women and men. But very often, women that I meet find it really helpful to have a cry, to talk over and over again about what's happened. And most of the fathers, the men that come with their partners usually to see me, come because they want to help their partner. They might also be there because they really want to talk about it themselves. Um, So it's not a set pattern, but on the whole, the man wants to do something that's going to help the his the mother's the, the mother of his child mm. he is usually um wanting to be restorative wanting to think about what can we do where can we go you know planning things and if he does that with her then it's likely that be really helpful for her if he can do it gently to actually just spend time with her Um, doing some restorative things even in the garden together can be really helpful and if she if the mother of the child talks to him about how she feels she will help him get in touch with his feelings they're there but very often they need to be helped by the the female in the family and quite often women say no I I don't speak to my partner about it because it'll upset him And then she's upset with him because he doesn't actually seem to feel it as deeply as she does. So where she can do it and say to him how she's felt upset from seeing a boy the same age as theirs out in the park and it really suddenly hit her like a brick and tell him what that was like, he will understand and be able to join her. Mm. So it's where parents can do a bit of loss feelings and a bit of restorative feelings and swap around. It's the going between those two feelings, the oscillation that really helps us in grief, that we can go backwards and forwards quite quickly. And it, it, it almost, in, in a layman's terms, uh, I almost look at that as, as sort of being teamwork in grief, really. A, a, yes. a, a couple working with each other, you know, exchanging those roles and and feeling and helping helping the other one, you know, get through it. Yes. Unfortunately, it's very often not like that, though, for couples who feel very differently in grief. Um, and I'm not saying it always happens at all, but it does seem to happen quite a lot in my experience. I'm reminded of a story where um, uh, I was asked to go and see a couple who were having problems in their relationship after the death of their child. And 
um, when I arrived to see them, I was very shocked at just how much anger there was. I could feel that he and she were both very angry. She was crying and angry, and he was very still and angry. And he went on to explain that he was just so very fed up of not coming home to a wife that felt like she'd done anything other than grieve and that he longed to just come home and have supper and be with her and to talk about other things. And all she did was talk about what she'd done all day, which seemed to be go to the grave, buy flowers, meet friends, have coffee, talk about it. And he just longed for that to change and he was feeling very sort of shut out by her and she was very upset with him, very angry with him and said some very angry things and I was feeling quite lost really as to what to do and I often just used my instinct and I just instinctively thought, I wonder how he's feeling about what she's just saying to him about not caring about their child and I just asked him I said can you tell me how you feel about your child and he looked at me and he was still for a moment and he seemed to be less angry and he just said you wouldn't believe what I do he said sometimes I so dread coming home and I just think I've got to have a bit of a break before I go in so he said, I'll go up to the cemetery. And he said, um, she's buried up on the hill on the cemetery there. And I drive my lorry up. And usually if I'm lucky, I can sort of get it right between the gates. And there's an area where I can park up. And then if I lift my headlights, they can pick up her little headstone. And I'm usually really, really sad. And I flash my my headlights on her headstone and uh, then and he was very upset telling the story and he took a few big breaths and then he said then I come home and I I just thought oh goodness and I was so relieved because she got up and she came over to him and she put her arms around him and she said I had no idea I had no idea love you even thought about her and he said, of course I think about her. And it was at that point that I realised that I really didn't need to stay any longer. You can get so stuck in both being in very different places that you can hardly talk to each other. Um, and it was a relief. I did see them again. Normally, um, about a month later, I used to work sort of every three to four weeks with couples. And that's why I think couples work is so important, because he clearly cared a great deal. That is a very emotional story to uh, to imagine being there. I mean, how do these these things affect you? On the whole, I'm really pleased that parents are brave enough to do and say the things that they do when they've been through such a terrible loss. They get themselves through this, and you don't ever forget or move on from the loss of your child. You always bring it with you. But you get on with life. So I suppose what I've learned is that most of the people I see actually manage to have an enduring connection with their child while they move on with life. And that's very uplifting for me to, to, to observe. And also I do hear of the most wonderful things that people do. I'm thinking, I must, must just tell you about this family who had had a, a child with a very long illness who had cancer. The child was not expected to live. She lived. She was a teenage girl. And um, her sister had felt, you know, quite neglected at times because mum and dad had had to spend so much time with this sister that was so ill. But she was so thoughtful and she was a young teenager but her older teenage sister the one that was not expected to live was talking about what she wanted for her funeral because the family had managed with some help to get to talk about something as difficult as that what was going to happen when she died and she wanted to look nice in her coffin and the younger sister offered to go shopping with her to buy a outfit that would make her feel 
good. And I found that such an amazingly lovely thing to be part of because the older sister did die and she did wear the clothes that her sister and she had chosen together. And she felt very included in such a terrible um, a terrible loss. And, and I saw the benefit of that afterwards. And what sort of things do you think people can do if they're a parent to try and help themselves in, in this sort of scenario? I think, I mean, lots of people I know find nature, walking out in nature, really helpful. We've talked about being able to talk about it, get get some help, find someone you trust that you can talk to. Um, to exercise is vitally important, even if it's only, you know, a little bit of exercise. To try and rest, even if you can't sleep very well, rest. Gardening is such a lovely a lovely thing to do and I'm reminded of a quote by Audrey Hepburn and she says to plant a garden is to believe in tomorrow and I know um, a bereaved mum who planted blue plants in her garden or in their garden that came up for each season because they'd lost a little boy and it was very very therapeutic for her to see this continuation of nature going on in the garden um, to do some voluntary work can be incredibly helpful. To take up cooking. I've got one friend who actually speaks on one of the podcasts with me who finds cooking really valuable. Mm. She loves cooking and learning and baking. She's forever baking. Um, tending your child's grave if that's something you want to do, not if you don't. There's no right way in that. Sharing memories and making collage of the person with your children can be or with your other children can be really helpful join a parents group or social media for a lot of people i see is very very helpful getting onto a charity's website that's a good one with mm. good social media um i do a bit of work with families where i see the whole family together and I do some family therapy where children of different ages all attend. And that, like on an anniversary once a year, is something I'm very pleased to be invited to. I was invited to a, a bonfire night on a, on a common where it was the anniversary of um, a young boy called Benny's death. And his parents are very open about me talking about that. Um, so, yeah. That's another way. So it seems to me as we round off this episode that, uh, well, the sort of key things to, to take away from it really are, are that there is no hierarchy to grief, as we've mentioned, and, and that there's no right or wrong way. No, and the loss of a child is whatever it is to its parents, and most parents will feel the loss all of their life, but they will also be able to get on with life um, yes, I think that's right. There's nothing more difficult. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. And uh, and thank you to those of you who have tuned in. Uh, as we mentioned, there are uh, links to resources on the podcast description, on the episode description. And we look forward to you joining us next time. But for now, from Jenny and from me, it's goodbye.